I'm going to do something totally different on this week's podcast episode. It's just going to be me on the podcast today, but instead of talking about my own experiences with blogging and online business or sharing some specific tips and tricks with you, today is going to be all about celebrating the successes of others. I'm sharing five stories of dietitians who are running successful blogs and online businesses with the goal of highlighting some of the unique ways that people in our space are absolutely kicking butt online and using blogging to grow their businesses and income. Some of the people I'm talking about today are students of my SEO Made Simple course, and some are just online blogger friends that I've made over the years, but all of them have at least one unique facet to their story that I know will speak to at least one person listening to the podcast right now. Of course, if you're a longtime listener, you probably remember some of the episodes I've done with bloggers where we spent a whole hour diving into their journey and their paths to success. But today, I'd like to go broad and highlight a wider variety of stories within this one episode with the hope that at least one will resonate with you, no matter what niche or monetization method you ultimately aspire to. And the common thread here is that all of these examples are dietitians who use blogging as one of their main methods for growing their audiences and making money online. I think it'd also be cool to do individual deep dive episodes with each of these bloggers in the future, so stay tuned because I'll probably do that, but I thought it'd be cool to try out a mini roundup style episode today instead. So let's get into these inspiring stories. And if you really connect with someone I mentioned here on the podcast today, be sure to swing by their website and send them some love. Welcome to the Unconventional RD Podcast, where we inspire dietitians to think outside of the traditional employment box and create their own unconventional income streams. We'll talk all things online business to help you start, grow, and scale your own digital empire. Inspiring blogger number one on today's episode is Christina Tadini from the food blog ForkInTheRoad.co. Christina is a food blogger dietitian friend that I originally met on Facebook many years ago when I was also still food blogging and just starting up the Unconventional RD brand and Facebook group. At that time, Christina and I were both running relatively small food blogs and were hoping to grow them into something that could make money online via display ads and affiliate links. We connected over our shared love for food and blogging and being in the same place-ish on our journey where we were publishing content, trying to take good photos and get traffic and learn SEO, etc., etc. Christina was, and still is, I believe, working a full-time job while running her blog, while I was working a zillion side jobs to stay afloat. And for the sake of this podcast, I tried to figure out exactly when Christina started blogging, and the earliest recipe she has on her current site right now is dated May 2017, but I was able to see on the Wayback Machine that her site was actually up and running all the way back in 2015, before she was an official RD even. And back then, her brand was, like, branded with the quote, a food, travel, and adventure blog at the top of the homepage. And she was posting recipes and a lot of travel posts about things to do in different countries around the world. Flash forward to today, and her branding is good for you plus good for the planet. And she shares plant-based recipes and sustainable kitchen tips. She has over 300 posts on her blog right now, built up obviously over many, many years. And she's currently publishing at a pace of roughly 10 posts-ish a month, which breaks down to two or three posts a week. So there are a few things I want to highlight about Christina's blogging journey. Number one, 
She started her blog while she was still in the process of finishing her internship and becoming an RD. And I think this is really important to highlight right now. You do not need to be an RD to start a website. I repeat, you do not need to be a registered dietitian to start a website. In fact, you probably shouldn't wait until you're done with school or internship in order to start, especially since blogging is a long-term game and it takes a long time to pick up steam with. Of course, if you plan to write on topics that can impact someone's health, then sure, having formal credentials will be important in the long run. But if you aspire to create a blog around a less EAT-heavy topic, like food or travel, then there is seriously no need to wait. Start now. And if you do plan to create a very nutrition-focused blog, I would still recommend starting now and at least getting familiar with how WordPress works, how to do keyword research, how to create content in a promotion calendar, how to set up an email list, etc., etc. There is a lot to learn that we're not taught in school, so you could just get started now, create content around topics that doesn't really require formal expertise, just so you can get some experience, and then hone your niche as you actually obtain your degree and certifications. The second thing that I want to point out, item number two, is that Christina actually started her website on Squarespace. And as time went on, she and she learned more about blogging best practices, she eventually moved over to a self-hosted WordPress website. But again, this is a great example of done is better than perfect. From what I can tell, it looks like Christina spent maybe two years or so on Squarespace before switching over to WordPress. And I'm sure she learned a ton during that time. And it's so funny, like looking back at her older site and the content that she was publishing at that time, because it's so much of the same like newbie blogger things, like the same mistakes that I was making back then as well, like titling a recipe easy peasy pot roast, because like that sounds like a fun and catchy name. Whereas, you know, if we had all known about SEO back then, (laughs) we would have probably looked up to see what people were typing into Google and target an actual keyword phrase like maybe weeknight pot roast or something, um, that would probably have gotten a lot more traffic to that post, which is just, it's just so funny because I see so much of myself in her older blog and my own older blog posts as well. And the third thing that I want to highlight is that Christina's is not an example of an overnight success story. And I love that. (laughs) So many of us in the online space have been working at this blogging thing for years. Some of us have spent a literal decade in the online space, publishing and learning and tweaking and growing imperfectly over time. And after all that time, you start to learn piece by piece what to do and what not to do. And eventually you might find your way to success if you're committed and you are a natural learner and implementer over time. Yes, you can definitely fast track that path. If you find a good course or mentor, someone who has experience in this space to guide you, and there are a lot more incredible resources available today than there were five or 10 years ago. But honestly, tenacity, a desire to learn, and an intrinsic love for content creation will eventually get you far as well. The important thing is about being open to learning and trying new things. If you just kind of like bury your head in the sand and you treat your blog like a personal journal, and that you don't really have any strategy and you're not trying to learn a strategy, then sure, that may never pay off for you in a monetary way. But if you are at least attempting to learn how to grow your blog, even if all you can handle is learning and implementing one new thing a month, start there. Any progress is progress, no matter how small it may seem in the moment. The fourth thing I wanted to highlight is that Christina is super transparent about her food blogging journey. 
So I remember in 2017 chatting with Christina about how we both found blogging income reports to be very inspiring and motivating for us on our blogging journey. And I know we were both avid followers of the Pinch of Yum income reports and listening to episodes of the Food Blogger Pro podcast. And at some point, we had both decided to publish income reports on our sites. I was publishing mine on the Unconventional RD since that's where my focus had started shifting. And Christina was publishing hers on her food blog at forkintheroad.co. And sometimes people question what the purpose of income reports are. And I really see it as twofold. It's a way to spread the word to others about how blogging can actually be a viable and profitable business and what all the details look like in terms of income streams and expenses. And it's a form of accountability for you, the blogger, since you know all your traffic stats and income are going to be posted publicly each month. It can give you that little push to keep going because you know other people are following along on your journey. So Christina does have some blogging income reports published on her site right now. The earliest one is from January 2019, where she shares how she made just under $1,500 from her blog that month. And the breakdown was, at that time, $10-ish from ads, about $60-ish from affiliate income, about $1,000 from two sponsored posts, and $400 from freelance writing and photography that she was doing on the side. And she had just under $300 in expenses that month, bringing her profit to around $1,200 for January 2019. And again, that's on the side of a full-time job. And for reference, these were the income numbers Christina was hitting when her blog was getting around 20,000 sessions per month. Flash forward to her last published income report from January 2022, which is honestly usually one of the lower earning months for bloggers, because that's right when all the advertising spend has been, you know, used up from the holidays. And it's usually the lowest ad spend month for brands in January. But you can see that Christina brought in over $3,100 that month with, at this point now, roughly $2,000 coming from ads on Mediavine and about $1,000 from affiliate income. And her traffic at that time was now around 75,000 sessions per month. So you can see over that few year time span, she transitions, she's no longer doing freelance work. All of the income from the blog is actually passive. And that's freaking awesome and such a great way to make this blogging thing work. It's a really common path to start out doing some freelance work that complements your blogging skills like freelance writing or freelance food photography or recipe development. That's exactly what I did while trying to get my online businesses up and running as well. I freelance wrote for Healthline. I did freelance recipe development and photography projects as they came up. And then as your own business starts to grow and earn revenue, you can slowly start to phase out those freelance projects until you're only working on your own stuff. And just to give everyone a more recent update as well, Christina is a member of my free Facebook group, the Unconventional RD community on Facebook. And she recently shared on a post that now in, what is this now, September 2022 that I'm recording this, um, but I believe this comment was from August 2022, that her blog is now getting around 125,000 sessions per month and bringing in around $5,000 every month, uh, mostly from passive ad revenue. And she shared that she's so thankful for the steady passive income because she was able to take almost a whole month off of work entirely and still earn $5,000 in revenue from her blog, even when she wasn't actively working on anything. And the nice thing about blogging is like you don't have to even post on social media, really, because most of your traffic is coming from evergreen sources via SEO. And I love even more 
that Christina is such a wonderful example of working on something over this on the side over many years and eventually seeing that asset grow into something significant that could eventually replace her full-time income if she wanted. And she also mentioned that now she's starting a few new blogs that she hopes to sell and then flip once they're bringing in some good traffic and monthly income. So essentially getting into website flipping, sort of like house flipping, but online. So you put in the initial time investment to build up a site to a certain point, let's say 5K per month for this example, and then you can flip it, aka sell it to someone else for up to 30 times the monthly revenue. So if you grew a blog to where it was making 5K in profit per month, you could feasibly sell that blog for a lump sum of like $150,000, which could be life-changing for a lot of people. I mean, hello, down payment for a house in California. (laughs) So of course, it would take a few years to grow a website to that size, but it's definitely a real opportunity out there in the online space if you're passionate about blogging. And I've talked about flipping websites on the podcast before in episode 74, where I interviewed Greg Elfrink from Empire Flippers. So if you're curious about what the world of buying and selling websites looks like, definitely check out that episode. But anyway, I just wanted to highlight Christina's food blog and the successful business she's built around it over the last seven years by learning about SEO and monetizing primarily via display ads and affiliate income. So if you are currently working a full-time job but are considering starting a blog on the side, I hope Christina's story inspires you to see that growing a profitable blog is still possible if you only have part-time hours to put towards it, if you stay committed to learning and implementing month after month and year after year. And again, if you want to check out more of Christina's food blog, you can find it at forkintheroad.co. The second dietitian blogger I wanted to highlight today is dietitian Melanie Betts, aka The Kidney Dietitian. And you can find her website at thekidneydietitian.org. Melanie is a student in my SEO Made Simple course, and she was able to grow her website from scratch to qualify for the Ad Network Media Vine in 14 months by following my SEO framework. And for reference, that is a really incredible feat. So kudos to Melanie for being such a great implementer. So honestly, that means she was able to go from getting zero monthly visitors on her website to 50,000 monthly sessions in just over one year. And once you qualify for Mediavine, you should bring in at least $1,000 per month in ad revenue from then on out. And that number typically climbs as your traffic grows and you better optimize the ads on your site. So I wanted to highlight Melanie on the podcast today because she's not a traditional food blogger. I think sometimes people listening think that you have to run a food blog in order to make it in the online space, but that is definitely not the case. Melanie's website is focused on nutrition for people with kidney stones and kidney disease. And while yes, she does publish some recipes on her site, specifically things like low oxalate and low potassium recipes, she also has a hefty article section on her site where she writes about nutrition topics related to kidney stones and chronic kidney disease. I love Melanie's success story because she focused first and foremost on making her website an actual helpful resource for her ideal reader, aka someone with kidney disease. Then she worked backwards from there to figure out what type of content would actually help people in that space. And for her, the answer was both information and recipes to help put some of that information into practice. She currently has 117 posts on her site and monetizes via display ads through Mediavine as one income stream. Roughly 60% of the posts are articles and roughly 40% are recipes, categorized as low oxalate, low potassium, and or plant-based. 
And as I said, this she only has Mediavine ads as one revenue stream. In addition to that, she also sells three e-cookbooks for sale on her website for people with kidney stones. And those range in price from around $20 to $35 a piece. She has two kidney stone diet guides that sell for $30 or $75, depending on which one you're buying. And she has an online kidney stone course that she is selling anywhere from $350 to $500, depending on which level of access you choose to sign up for. And Melanie's story is super duper inspiring because thanks to all of the front end work she put into her blog and her online business over the last few years, she has been able to achieve five figure months this year while also becoming a parent during the same time frame. Like that equates to a solid six figure income through your online business slash blog without having to do any one on one work. Like what a blessing, right? So if you are listening and you love helping a specific population, but you don't want to be a typical food blogger, know that you can totally create a successful site that helps people with more than just recipes, including things like nutrition articles, ebooks, and online courses, and that it's definitely possible and probably preferable to eventually diversify your revenue streams anyway, so that your eggs are not all in one basket over the long run. So if you'd like to check out Melanie's site for some blogging slash online business inspiration, you can find it at thekidneydietitian.org. Example number three of a successful dietitian blog is Rebecca Bitzer and her team at rbitzer.com. And this is yet another great example of the diversity of success stories in the online space. Rebecca is also not a traditional blogger. In fact, she's the owner of, or founder, I guess, of an in-person insurance-based group practice called Rebecca Bitzer & Associates, which has two co-owners, 13 team members, and several in-person locations across Maryland. And their business became intrigued about the concept of blogging and earning additional passive income online, and they decided to add a blog to their practice's website. And since joining my course and learning about SEO, they've been able to grow the blog to that 50K monthly session minimum required to be eligible for Mediavine, and they now have an entirely additional passive revenue stream that brings them ad revenue and a huge audience to their brand via their blog content. At this point, they've published over 800 blog posts, which is an amazing feat, and they have a nice little recurring revenue stream from the website. And I really like this example because I often see content from rbitzer.com ranking on page one in the wild when I'm just naturally searching for stuff online, things like low FODMAP snacks or best Trader Joe's dinner, like just practical things that I actually Google myself. And it's yet another example of a team of motivated RDs learning how to do SEO and then absolutely crushing it. So I think some of the main takeaways here are that Number one, you can start a blog, even if you are an insurance-based private practice RD. So sure, your blog may not bring you many one-on-one clients if you only serve people in a certain you know, local geographic location, but it can become its own passive income stream on its own, one that can build brand awareness and revenue totally separate from your one-on-one work. Lesson number two is that you don't have to do all the work yourself. If you visit the rbitzer.com website, you'll see that there's a whole team of dietitians producing content for the site. It's not all one person shouldering all the work. Part of the reason they were able to grow so successfully is because they were sharing the workload, and they knew that they could accomplish more as a team than they ever could alone. And by tackling content production as a team, they're able to put out roughly two posts per week at this point, which translates to about 100 posts per year, probably without too much stress. Lesson number three is that you can publish content that aligns with your interests and skill set. So I'm just going to circle back to this point again. 
You don't have to force yourself to create content you don't enjoy just because you think there's only one path to success. For example, most of the articles posted on this site are not really research heavy, so I don't see this as being a super, super time suck on their business. A lot of the posts they publish are roundup style or list posts where they're compiling practical ideas and tips for people versus doing a lot of heavy duty research in PubMed or recipe development in photography. Think things like 28 easy low FODMAP snacks. And in those posts, they include some links to their own recipes, some quick snack ideas that don't have links, and also some links to products from stores or, you know, product websites as well. And in the grand scheme of things, content like that can be relatively quick to throw together. Other list post examples that they have include things like eight Starbucks drinks for people with diabetes, 28 low FODMAP breads to try, 15 low sodium snacks for high blood pressure, etc., etc. And of course, there was keyword research done, I'm sure, to come up with these topics. They're not just coming up with these off the top of their head. But the point is that keywords and blog topics come in all shapes and flavors, and you can find a content production style that works for you. I think this story will resonate with you if you currently run a private practice and you aren't sure if adding a blog to your site makes sense, if it would be successful, or if it would align with your interests. So hopefully this is another you know, example of something that resonates with someone listening to this podcast today. So if you want to check out the Rebecca Bitzer and Associates site for some inspiration, you can find it at rbitzer.com. Example number four of a dietitian blogger success story that I'd like to share is Sarah Almond Bushel, founder of childrensnutrition.co.uk. And Sarah's story is for you if you've been blogging for a long time and maybe feel like you just have too much history of unoptimized content on your site to turn the ship around and turn your site into something successful. Sarah has actually had her website since 2008. Yes, that's almost 15 years online, with the majority of those years spent not knowing about SEO. Sarah eventually joined my SEO course a few years ago and got to work on implementing an SEO strategy for her site in order to sell her online children's nutrition courses and eventually get enough traffic to be eligible for Mediavet. And guess what the best part of Sarah's story is? One that I think that will inspire so many of you listening. Again, Sarah's website was on Squarespace. And I know if you listen to this podcast, (laughs) you know that I'm a huge proponent of having a self-hosted WordPress website rather than being on platforms like Squarespace or Wix, where you don't have full control over everything. But Sarah went all in on the progress is better than perfection philosophy and decided to give blogging her best shot with the website she currently had on Squarespace. So she did not make the switch over. She just started implementing an SEO strategy on Squarespace itself. So you can follow most of the same on-page and off-page SEO strategies that you would do on a self-hosted WordPress website. It's really the technical behind-the-scenes stuff that you don't have control over with platforms like Squarespace or Wix. So those technical factors are usually smaller ranking factors, so it is still possible to see some success with SEO if your website is on Squarespace or Wix, but it does depend somewhat on your niche. If you're in a really competitive space, like food blogging, for example, where there's a lot of technical nuances and a lot of competition, then in that example, you really do need to be on WordPress. But if you're publishing more article style content, you can probably eventually rank your stuff on Wix or Squarespace. Uh, It just may take a little longer than if you could absolutely dial in every bit of your SEO on a WordPress site that you have 100% full control and customizability on. So anyway, the point of this story is that Sarah decided to stay on Squarespace and give it a shot. 
Initially, she was able to get enough traffic and traction to have success selling her online products and membership in the children's nutrition slash baby led weaning niche. But after about two and a half years, she was also able to reach 50K monthly sessions required to join Mediavine as well. And then once she reached Mediavine, or at least enough traffic to be eligible for Mediavine, she knew that she would start earning an additional income stream at that point once she got accepted. So then it was an easier decision probably to invest in hiring someone to switch her website over to WordPress so that she could apply to Mediavine and have the best shot at optimizing her ads and earning the most revenue possible. Because while you can put ads on your site if you're still on Squarespace, um, you cannot optimize them as well, so your earnings may be lower. So flash forward to today, the redesign is done. She is officially on a self-hosted WordPress website. She has Mediavine ads on her site, and she's earning an additional four figures a month in ad revenue. So yay. And this is in addition to some exciting brand work that she does as well. So if you are on Squarespace or Wix, this is your official nudge that that's not a reason to stay stuck in inaction. If you don't have the budget or the interest in switching platforms right now, you can still start learning about SEO and publish articles that can rank and bring you traffic, even if it ends up taking slightly longer than if you were self-hosted on WordPress. You can get there, even if you take the path less traveled and less recommended. Sometimes it's better to work with what you have than to do nothing at all. And the second thing I'd like to highlight about Sarah's journey is that she is based in the UK and is using a .co.uk domain, not a traditional .com domain. And some of you listening may be in a similar situation with country-specific top-level domains like .ca for Canada or .fr for France, for example. This is not a super common scenario, but it does come up from time to time. And I love Sarah's success story because yes, having a country level domain name may make it harder for you to grow US-based traffic than if you just had a .com domain because you're sending a signal to Google that you think your content is especially relevant to whatever specific country your domain is. So for example, sometimes big brands have different versions of their websites with different country level domains like amazon.com, amazon.fr, and amazon.ca. And each version of the site ranks in each respective country and caters to that location. So for smaller businesses, you're kind of sending a similar message by using a country level domain that you think that your content is super relevant to the people in that specific country. This could actually help you if you're trying to sell a product or service in a specific geographic location, but it could make it harder to rank in other countries if that's a goal of yours. And it should be worth noting that if you're trying to earn ad revenue, they do like to see the bulk of traffic coming from English-speaking countries that their advertisers want to target. So that's primarily the US, UK, Canada, Australia, and New Zealand. So keep that in mind when planning your website and content strategy as well. So anyway, the point I'm trying to make is that despite having a country-specific domain and being on Squarespace, Sarah was still able to hit that 50K sessions per month after two and a half years with a large portion of that traffic coming from the US followed by the UK and was able to get into Mediavine. And if that isn't perseverance, I don't know what is. So if you'd like to check out Sarah's site for some inspiration, you can find it at childrensnutrition.co.uk. And the final example I wanted to share with you today is from dietitian Danielle Aberman, one of the founders of MigraineStrong.com. Danielle is an SEO Made Simple student and another wonderful example of perseverance in the online space. The brand Migraine Strong, I think, was founded about five years ago, but they didn't start focusing on blogging and SEO until about 2020, I believe. So maybe like two and a half years ago-ish at this point. 
And around that time, they decided to start creating SEO optimized content on their site with the goal of growing an audience through Google and possibly being able to apply for Mediavine. And I wanted to highlight this example because it's probably the most intensely sciency and medically example on this list. And that means it does require a lot more EAT, expertise, authority, and trustworthiness, in order to satisfy what Google wants to display in the search results for keywords in this niche. So if you're listening and your niche is very heavily MNT focused and has the potential to impact someone's health and care of their medical conditions, know that the expectations are going to be a little higher for you and the content you produce on your site. If you're just writing about recipes and snack ideas, then it doesn't really require any formal expertise or education to do so. However, if you start writing about health topics, like the articles we mentioned previously about kidney disease, or this example here focused on migraines, know that the journey might be a little slower for you for a few reasons. Reason number one, health topics are more niched and they impact a smaller percentage of the, of the population than generic content like recipes. So the search volumes tend to be lower around these topics. If you're selling something to your audience, then that may not matter so much since you can target those keywords and know that you are essentially bringing your ideal potential customers right to your site. But if your goal is ad revenue, then it could be a little tougher to achieve. Reason number two is that the competition will generally be much higher for the high volume keywords in, in your niche, since large authority sites like Healthline, Medical News Today, and other highly, highly regarded websites will likely have the top spots on page one of the search results. And when I say authority sites, I mean websites that have a ton of trust with Google around the topic in question. They usually have a pretty high domain authority, like in the 80s or 90s, tons of great backlinks, lots of expertise, authority, and trustworthiness in the niche, and they're usually run or created by healthcare professionals and often, but not always, highly niched around a specific topic. So for example, if you Google diet for migraines, you will see on page one, American Migraine Foundation, DA of 64, a PubMed article, DA95, John Hopkins Lupus Center, DA54, Healthline, DA89, Headaches.org, DA63, Everyday Health, DA79, Medical News Today, DA91, WebMD, DA94, and another article from the British Medical Journal with a DA of 91. So essentially, websites that Google generally trusts for health information mix with some highly regarded niche-specific websites. In this case, websites that specialize in migraine or headaches and have a pretty decent authority online. So that is a lot harder than ranking for something like low FODMAP snacks, which mostly features bloggers, not medical journals. Um, it doesn't show, you know, something like low FODMAP snacks doesn't show high authority medical news sites or foundation or hospital websites that specialize in certain conditions. So it's just easier to rank overall. One of the ways to potentially get around this, if your goal is to target high volume keywords for ad revenue, as I've talked about in other episodes of this podcast, is to think creatively to possibly target other related keywords that are less medically or that are diet focused, since that is what we as dietitians have expertise in. So for example, perhaps you could write about XYZ food and migraines. I bet there's a lot of different foods or herbs or supplements that people have questions about and Google in relation to migraines. And these more niche topics are generally easier to rank for than the more generic terms and typically still have you know at least a couple hundred searches a month. You can also try to think about diet-related terms that don't necessarily have the word migraine in it, but that still may be relevant, maybe like low-tyramine diet or low-tyramine snack ideas, etc. 
Another thing you could still rank for that doesn't require formal expertise is personal stories. So when Google thinks the search intent of a query is someone wants to read personal stories from people who have gone through XYZ thing, then even if you aren't a super large authority site, but you have a strong and clear niche, you might have a shot at ranking. For example, something like how I cured my blank or how I recovered from blank. You'll see that those types of keywords, Google still shows authority sites for like half the results, but the other half are personal stories in the form of blog posts or maybe YouTube videos. And if you're just sharing your own story and you're not giving out medical or health advice, then Google's not so critical about your EAT. Obviously, you can only do so many of these types of posts since there probably won't be a ton of these keywords in your niche, but it's another idea to think about. And I won't sugarcoat it. This type of niche is probably one of the hardest ones out there, and it will probably take a lot longer to see success. And if your niche is super condition specific and you're not planning on posting recipes at all, I would strongly consider adding additional revenue streams beyond just ads. Because the truth is, you're developing a very niched audience that you understand inside and out. And that means that each follower or email subscriber that you get is probably much more valuable than a subscriber on a generic food blog, for example. You would probably have a much higher chance for success developing a digital or physical product, an online course, membership, even doing affiliate sales um, for something that addresses a need of your specific audience. You have a higher chance of actually making sales than the average online content creator. So I would definitely suggest thinking about how you might add that to your business plans. Because if you are solely focused on ad revenue in this type of niche, you're probably missing out on a lot of opportunity and it will take you a lot longer to get there most likely because you will likely have to target longer tail, lower volume keywords in order to have a chance to rank. So it's just naturally gonna take longer to build up those 50K monthly sessions that you need in order to get on an ad network. So those are just some things to ponder if you're in a similar type of niche. Number three, there's one last thing I wanted to highlight with this migraine strong example before we sign off today, and that is the power of persistence and consistency with blogging. If you create content online, it's likely that you will be negatively impacted by a Google algorithm update at some point. It's almost unavoidable if you blog for long enough. And that is actually exactly what happened to migrainestrong.com. They started implementing an SEO strategy and were seeing great results. I think they were getting close to being eligible for Mediavine. And then bam, they were hit by an algorithm update at the end of 2020. And I believe this was a pretty large hit. Based on SEMrush estimates, it looks like they lost perhaps around 50% of their traffic from this update. And ouch, I mean, that hurts. But what did Danielle and her team do? Well, they might have cried for a day or two, but then they got back on the horse and they kept going confident that if they continued to follow best practices and put out high quality content that they would eventually recover and improve they did slowly but surely gradually month after month they were regaining their lost traffic and roughly a year and a half after being hit they were now having better traffic months than ever and had pretty much recovered from that previous update doesn't mean they're immune to future updates but that is a story of recovery post being hit by an update and I also had a similar experience with my functional nutrition blog back in the day. I had really fast growth in the beginning. Then we did get hit by the, one of the largest algorithm updates that ever happened um, in June 2019, and that wiped about half of our traffic overnight. But I kept going. I was only publishing one piece of content per month, but they were really good pieces, highly optimized, targeting high volume keywords uh, with the goal of driving signups for our paid membership site. And Bam, you know, just shy of a year later, we were back to our previous levels of traffic. 
And I've since shuttered that business to fully focus on the unconventional RD. So I don't have any like recent updates to add to that story, but it's just another data point to highlight that there can be some volatility in SEO, but with consistency and continuing to follow best practices, you can usually recover with time. So I really wanted to commend Danielle and her company for their perseverance and great example of good content getting rewarded with time if you don't give up. So there you have it. That's five examples of RD bloggers who are having success in various types of niches and monetization models. And I sincerely hope this episode opened your mind to the possibilities out there online and helped you see beyond the TikTok slash Instagram tunnel vision that can happen sometimes. So if you are an introvert, a content creator, and perhaps a lover of writing, there is a space for you out here in the blogosphere. So if you want to learn more about how you can grow a successful blog and monetize an audience online, head over to seowaitlist.com and add your name to the list. I'll send you a few emails and stories about SEO and then invite you via email to watch my free masterclass where I go deep into the four-step framework that I teach in my course that shows you exactly how to grow your audience through blogging. And at the end of the class, you'll get an exclusive invitation to join my course, SEO Made Simple. And being on my waitlist slash email list is currently the only way to sign up for the course. There's no other publicly available sales page. So definitely get on there if you're not already on my list, because I promise you will get a ton of value out of my emails, even if you're not ready to join my course. And by being on the email list, you will get an invite to join my course periodically throughout the year. So as always, I hope you have a fabulous rest of your week and happy online businessing.